and take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, whether you're turning there in your own Bible or on your tablet or your phone or if you want to use the Bible that's on the rack in front of you, uh, you can find 1 Kings 11 starting on page 340. But regardless of what you use, I'd encourage you to turn there uh, because it's a bit of an extended text and it'd be helpful to be looking at it as we kind of read through it. Now, what we're doing this week is we're concluding our look at the life and the reign of King Solomon. We've been doing that since the end of April. And so now we kind of come to the end of Solomon, quite literally, in fact, of course, because at the end of this chapter, he dies. And so it's his, it's his end in that sense. But we also see sort of this almost complete unraveling of everything that Solomon's kingdom had, had once been. So all the glory, all the, all the splendor, the majesty, the gold, the riches, the accolades, all of those things sort of come in chapter 11, as one of the commentators puts it, to sort of this dull thud. And so what I'd like to do is sort of, sort of a little bit of a post-mortem analysis. And a post-mortem after death, literally, I mean, is originally sort of a medical, you think of it in medical terms, an autopsy of sorts. Okay, after someone's died, how did they die? What exactly happened? Um, but this is, but it's, it's a broader kind of sense than that. And, you know, in the military, they call it an after-action review. When I was at Sunoco in the corporate world, we used to call it a post-audit when we did a, a significant investment or made an acquisition. You kind of say, all right, what did, how did it work out? What happened? How, did it, how, how did, it, did it do what we thought it was, was going to do? What can we learn from this? So that's what I want to do with, with, with 1 Kings chapter 11 as we look at sort of the end of Solomon. What happened and what can we learn from this? I'm going to do it a little bit differently. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read 1 Kings 11 sort of in sections and we'll stop and I'll make a few comments and then we'll kind of continue on reading. And then after we finish reading, then we'll take a couple minutes and we'll say, all right, what are the lessons learned? Every post-audit, every, every, every uh, after-action review. Like, what are the lessons learned? What are the takeaways? So then we'll, we'll, we'll do that after we finish reading. All right, let's start. First Kings um, chapter 11, starting at verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I most certainly will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. They will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Okay, stop. 
Okay, so here's, okay, here's the first problem, really, in a sense, the foundational problem of everything that we see here. We see that Solomon's heart has turned away from the Lord. And it starts, it says, with his love, verse 1, for foreign women. Right? And we know that he had married the daughter of Pharaoh back in 1 Kings chapter 3. And, and, and it, for whatever you might have thought back then, it's just kind of, okay, it's just, this is the way politics was done. This is the way international relations were done. It's just a formality. Whatever that might have been at the time, now, you see, things have seriously gotten out of control. <laughs> He's got 700 wives of royal birth. Right? which means like, some sort of political connection. So not only is there, is there a, a problem of, of sexual lust going on here, but there's, but there's a problem of sort of political power lust. I, I'm just going to make alliances with everyone. I'm going to have this great and tremendous power that comes through these political alliance, alliances. 700 wives of royal birth. In addition, as if that wasn't enough, 300 mistresses who weren't good enough to merit the title of wife because it was so competitive, obviously, to be one of those 700 wives, that, that, that they, they were kept around too. So regardless of where it started, you, you see we're, we now have this serious problem. But you notice it's not the external thing really that's the primary focus here. It's the fact that his heart had gone after other things. Right? His heart had gone after these women to a, in a sense, but really his heart had gone after their gods. His heart had turned away from the Lord. Instead of worshiping God, and remember this was the guy who had built the temple. Instead of worshiping God, he was now setting up places of worship for other gods. And it started in response to, to, to his wives who came to him and said, hey, we're from another place. We've got a different God. Would you set up a place so we can worship our, our God? And he said, sure. But it seems to indicate here that Solomon went after this too. He began worship. His heart had gone after, after other gods. And so justifiably, God is angry about this. Angry because he had commanded Solomon not to do this. He had commanded the people of Israel, obviously, not to go after the, uh, the, the gods of the nations around them angry as well because God knows how Solomon was made. He knows how, how we're made, and he knows that we're built, we're made to function only when we're in right relationship with him, the one true God. And so he's angry that we have distorted what is not only his due and his, and, and his dignity, but is what's best for us as well. So that's the, that's the foundational problem. Now, but keep reading, because <clears throat> Solomon has external problems as well, political problems. Verse 14, then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal tribe of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men in Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then, taking men from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Topanes, in marriage. The sister of Topanes bore him a son named Genuboth, whom Topanes brought up in the royal palace. There, Genuboth lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go, that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here that you want to go back to your own country? Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezan, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezar, king of Zobah. He gathered men around him and became the leader of a band of rebels when David destroyed the forces of Zobah. The rebels went to Damascus 
where they settled and took control. Rezan was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezan ruled in Aram and was hostile toward Israel. Okay, stop again. So God raises up two men to trouble Solomon. Neither of them are Israelites, right? Hadad in the south is an Edomite. Now, Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. So Jacob and Esau, brothers of, of Isaac, Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel him, himself, Jacob. Esau, his brother, and there was conflict from the very beginning, right? Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright. They didn't get along from the very beginning, right? There's conflict from the very beginning, but Esau becomes the father of the Edomites. Now, you see, down through present day, the conflict continues, and the most recent cause of the, of the slighting and the wronging here is, is you have this, this, this son, this rightful heir to the, the throne of Edom, who was defeated by David, going in exile in Egypt and sort of biding his time. I'm going to wait here until David dies, and Joab, the commander of, of David's army, until he dies, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to cause trouble for Solomon. Now, then you have this, this guy, Rezon, in the north. Now, he's from the kingdom of Zobah. Now, in this case, it's an occupied land, also kind of rooting back to the wars of David. Right? It's an occupied, an occupied uh, land, the uh, kingdom, and he didn't want any part of it. He didn't want to live under the occupying powers, and so he forms, gathers around him a bunch of men to form a, an insurgency, a guerrilla army. And they sort of center themselves in Damascus, and they start making trouble. Now, in both cases, you have here God raising them up. You see, God, then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary. God's doing this in response. See the link between the problem before. The, the problem, that, this personal problem, this problem of worship, the problem of the heart that Solomon had that is detailed at the beginning of chapter 11, it now works itself out in God beginning to judge that by bringing external political problems to bear for Solomon. But they weren't just forces from the outside. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. And Jeroboam, son of Nabat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeradah, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here's the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out to Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Kamash, the, goddess, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. 
I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. Okay, stop again. So this is, so this is, this is from the inside. Right? Jeroboam, he's an Israelite. He's from the half-tribe of Ephraim. And, and he's a rising star, so it seems, a hot prospect in the, in the governing, ruling forces of, of, of the nation. Right? He had a significant role in the construction of the temple. He, he did very well. Solomon gave him more responsibility. He's, on, he's an up-and-comer. Right? But in response to Solomon's idolatry and Solomon's turning away of, of his heart from God, God speaks to Jeroboam through the prophet, the prophet Ahijah, and tells Jeroboam that he's going to become king over 10 of the, of the 12 original tribes of Israel. Now, it's not going to happen until after Solomon's death. It's going to be a problem for Solomon's son, not for Solomon specifically. But that doesn't stop Solomon from recognizing what's going on, from kind of seeing what's happening, and he tries to kill Jeroboam. So obviously, in response to this prophecy, Jeroboam begins to take some action that Solomon sees that says, oh, wait a minute, this guy's he's trying, to, he's trying to accumulate power. He's trying to gather people around him. So Solomon tries to kill him. Jeroboam flees. He heads off to Egypt to bide his time until Solomon dies which, of course, eventually comes. Let's finish. Verse 41. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, so that's how it happened. That's, that's what happened. That's right? what went wrong, how, how, how it all went down. Solomon's love shifted from God to other things. And in judgment, God raises up enemies from the outside and he raises up enemies from the inside that will ultimately lead to the splitting apart of his kingdom, right? And then he dies. Thud, <laughs> right? After all the splendor, after everything that, everything that, everything that happened, right? Because chapter 11, it begins with King Solomon, however, However, what? Chapter 10 is the height of the splendor, the height of the glory. You see all of the wisdom. You've got people, dignitaries, coming from all over, the, all over the known world to come and see everything that Solomon had built. However, and then everything unravels and comes apart. Okay, that's what happened. But any, any kind of post-audit, any, any post-mortem, after-action review, it's always, okay, so that's, all right, that's what happened. But what, is, what does that mean? What, is, what, is, what does it tell us? What takeaways? What are the lessons learned? So here are five. And I'll classify them as five. And the first two, I give credit where credit is due. The first two, the phrasing of the first two, I got from Phil Riken. Phil Riken, former pastor in Philadelphia, is now the president of Wheaton College. I, I couldn't say it any better than, than and he phrased it, so I'll just, I'll just use his, his phrasing. The lesson number one, this is how Riken phrased it. We start falling into sin long before we ever fall into disgrace. We start falling into sin long before we ever start falling into disgrace. That's how he puts it. Now, think about it. What's that mean? Think about this, right? As another commentator kind of put it, a small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. And just a small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Now, think of it like that. So you're on a journey, right? You're on a journey, and you're setting out. You see a destination kind of out, and you, and you kind of set your course and say, okay, that's, that's where I want to be. Now, if you alter your course by just one degree, just one degree. Now, remember, all the way around is, is 360, right? 360 degrees. Just one degree, you alter your course. Now, if your destination is just one foot in front of you, right, you've missed your destination by probably about 0.2 inches or something. I mean, it's, like, you know, it's almost completely imperceptible. You have no idea. You're off. Now, consider the distance to be much farther, though. Let's say you're starting here in Wilmington, and you want to fly around the world and land back here in the exact same spot here in Wilmington. 
right? So you set your course, but you're off just one degree, just one degree. Right? And you go all the way around. Where are you going to end up? From what I read, it'd be about 435 miles off. And that put you like north of here, like directly north of here. Like if you were one degree off, kind of, you know, tending north, you'd end up like near Ottawa, Canada, in a completely different country. Like just one degree. You see, just a small difference in trajectory can make a very big difference in, in destination. Now, think about that in spiritual terms. Spiritually. Every day we make decisions, don't we? Every day we make, we make decisions that seem, at that moment, that they might have no perceptible kind of difference. And what difference is it if I you know, pray today, not pray today? I mean, in any, in any one instance or whatever, there may be no perceptible difference whatsoever. Right? But played out over a lifetime, those kinds of decisions begin to make a, to make a very big difference indeed. I think back to Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3. I told you that's where he married Pharaoh. Now, even if you could go back, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, he married Pharaoh's daughter back in 1 Kings chapter 3. Even if you could go back to that time, right? That's where it started. You just kind of say, like, look, even if the argument was made, and you kind of say, all right, fine, look, it's just, it's, it's just how politics is done. It's just one call. Thing. I, don't, I don't love her. There's nothing. It's just a formality. It's just a legal formality. This is how international treaties are sealed. She's just going to come and live here. It's no big deal, right? But that's the one degree. This is the, this is the, the start of the turn. And then you play that out in a full, cir- full, full circle around the globe, and where do you end up? You end up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, those kinds of things happen to us all the, con- all, all the time, right? Like, I mean, to take kind of Solomon's, you know, primary failing here, whatever. I mean, God, you know, guys, like your eyes linger for just a little bit too long. That, gro- that magazine in the grocery store, the little racy magazine pictures you probably shouldn't be looking at or whatever, just a second. is like, imperceptible, just kind of one foot, but you play that out. Now, maybe you don't end up with 700 literal wives, but the effect ultimately on your heart is exactly the same. Right? So what do you do? What's the lesson? Well, the, the lesson here, the one of the lessons you can kind of learn is that you know, no pilot who's flying around the world is going to assume that they can just sort of set their, set their trajectory on, on the course and leave it there, that they're never going to deviate, that circumstances aren't going to happen that are going to pull them in one direction or another. So what are they doing? They're constantly checking whether they're on course. Whether, the, whether it needs to be adjusted or not. And I think one of the primary lessons that we can learn from Solomon here is that those course corrections are significantly easier when we catch them before they become major deviations. And what that means then is we become ruthless about the small things, the small sins, the little things, the things in and of themselves are just very easy to rationalize. That's not a big deal, and it might not be a very big deal in that instance. This is one degree. But when you become ruthless about those things, rooting them out, bringing them to the Lord, saying, no, this isn't the course that I want to be on, then, then it's not all that difficult to change, back, to, to change your course back. Now, you don't do it arrogantly. You don't do it in a sense of superiority. Look at everyone else. Look how moral I'm being. I care about the one degree. No, but you do it because you realize that those kinds of things play out, play out over a lifetime, and all of a sudden your heart is far away from where you would have said you wanted it to be. All right, so that's lesson number one. All right, lesson number one. We start, by, we start falling into sin long before we ever fall into disgrace. Now, lesson number two. Even the greatest spiritual gifts will not keep us from sin if our hearts turn away from God. Right? Now, in other words, your giftedness does not guarantee the condition of your heart. It, did the question at all occur to you, or has it occurred to you over kind of our, our study if you've been here since, since April? Did the question all occurred to you, look at this. If Solomon was so wise, if he was so brilliant, could he do such dumb things? Right? And the answer is, Solomon's wisdom is a gift from God. And there are many times when it was brilliantly on display. 
right? The judicial disputes like between the two women in 1 Kings chapter 3 or in the, the, the managing of this, you know, the biggest construction project in the history of the, the nation of Israel or, or all that he wrote in the Proverbs, all of his, his writings, all those kind of things, his gift just on display. But too often we confuse a person's gifts with a person's heart. Solomon didn't fail because what he wrote in Proverbs was wrong. Solomon failed because his heart turned away from the God to whom those Proverbs pointed. So what do we do? It means that if we're evaluating our spiritual condition, if we're evaluating our course, and whether we're on it or not, our trajectory versus our, our planned course, if we're evaluating it, what it means is we don't, we don't look at the, we don't look at the primarily at the external things because they can be misleading. Because you can be serving in all kinds of ways. Just think of it spiritually. You can be serving in all kinds of ways. You come into church, you can be, you know, you, you always, always attend your community group. You, you lead things. You, you say yes when people ask you to volunteer. You're an elder, maybe. You're a deacon. You're a missionary. You're a missionary to South Asia. You, all those kinds of things. You could be very, very true, and you could be very, very good at all of them. But that alone says, says very little about the condition of your heart. So you honestly ask yourself this question. is okay, what what is the condition of my heart toward God? What is the greatest object of my allegiance? Right? Even, even in serving the Lord, am I, do I really, what do I really like about it? Do I really like sort of the feeling of accomplishment that it brings to me? Do I really like what other people say about me when I, when I serve with, with excellence? Is that what, or, is it, or is it about God? I'm not saying that you'll ever be able to completely pull apart your motivations. You won't. We're, we're sinners. Our motivations are mixed. But asking that question is how you do the course correction. Wait a minute. Why am I doing this? Where's my heart? What am I really thinking about as I'm doing this? Right? As I'm preaching. As I'm singing beautifully. Right? Where's my heart? That's how you make the course corrections. Because right? even the greatest spiritual gift will not keep us from sin if our hearts turn away from, from God. I just think of the aviation kind of metaphor. Right? I'm not... I'm not, talking about your, I'm not talking about your destination. I'm, 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 I'm not talking about, uh, about how far you are away from it. Right? If, you're, if the goal, if the destination where you want to get to is, is, is God himself, my heart, I want my heart, that's, that's and, and I'm not talking about like, but I'm really, I feel really far away. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about how quickly you're getting there. I just feel like I'm getting there so slow, slowly. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the direction not how fast you're going, and not how far away it is, but are you on course? And what lesson number two is telling us is that the instrument we use to determine whether we're off course is not the giftometer, it's the heart meter. That's how we know. All right, that's, that's number two. But this is pretty depressing if we stop here, isn't it? I mean, if we just stopped here, I mean, this is because I think, I think of all the, of these two lessons or whatever, and I think, man, I'm off more than one degree. I'm going to end up somewhere in the Arctic Circle, not Canada. Right? right? But see, we don't stop here because the, the, the other three lessons, they build on this. They continue to build on each other. Listen to this. Lesson number three, God is in control. And we see this specifically in the case of the discipline that he's promising to bring against Solomon. Go back to verse 35, right, where God is talking through the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam. And see how, see how he phrases it. This is how he says. He's talking about Solomon, and he says, I will, I will take the kingdom from his, from his son's hands, that's from Solomon's hands, and I will give you, that's Jeroboam, I will give you ten tribes. You see that? Who's in control of this? The unraveling. God is. 
Right? Now, at a broader level, that should be somewhat comforting to us during times of political uncertainty. We look around the world, right? Kingdoms unraveling. What's going on? This is very comforting because what this is saying is even in the midst of that, the consequences of sin, God is in complete control of kings and kingdoms, right? dictators and regimes, presidents and nations. Now, but at a personal level, as you consider your own life, it also means that God is in complete control of my disobedience and its consequences as well. If he's in control of the macro disobedience and its consequences, he's in control of my disobedience and, my, and, and the consequences. This is what I mean, and this is why it's comforting. If you, were the, if you were the nation of Israel, and you're going through the centuries of political conflict and war and exile and bad leadership that are to follow, right, all the consequences of, of, of sin that will result from the downfall of Solomon's kingdom, and you're looking through those centuries for hope, then that hope would start with the truth that God is sovereignly ruling over all of it. Right? And he is allowing the nation to experience the consequences of these things, not because those things are out of his control, but because under his perfect control, he has designed those circumstances to be used for the ultimate good of the nation. And so, personally now, if you're suffering through the consequences of personal sin and poor decisions, right, even if they're your own, fractured relationships, addictions, uh, destructive behavior, or if you're suffering through the consequences of just sin more, more broadly, disease or the prospect of, of physical death, or you're suffering through the consequences of someone's sin against you, abuse or, or neglect, then the hope starts with the truth that God is sovereignly ruling over it all. Now, that might not initially sound terribly hopeful to some people because it, it, it can raise all kinds of questions, the why questions. Okay, but why? why? Why this? Why now? Why is God doing, why is he doing this? Why is he allowing me to experience this in this way at this time? And in the specifics of your circumstance, we have to admit that in many cases, we, I, you, you, you don't know. For Israel, it would take centuries of perspective beyond the lifetime of any of them individually to be able to look back and see what God is up to. And so we have to humbly kind of admit that just because we can't figure out the reason now, it doesn't mean that from God's perspective there is no reason. And we might be willing, we might, we might have to be willing to trust in faith that only with centuries of perspective will we be able to see or understand even the smallest amount of an answer to the specific why question. But for now, I would argue that for, for whatever struggle the why questions might pose, that you do not want a God who in the midst of your struggle with sin's consequences is not sovereign over them is surprised by them or is wondering what to do next. No, you want and you have here in the God of, 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 of 1 Kings 11, you have a God who is in control of all of them. That's lesson number three. And you want God to continue to be in control because, lesson number four, God is not done with his promises to David and Solomon. He's not done. There's judgment to come, but he's not done. Look at verse 39. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. There's a but. I will humble, but. Now, what's this mean? Go back to verse 35, which we just read. I will take the kingdom from, from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. Now, keep reading, verse 36. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. So what's happening? Judgment is coming. The kingdom of Solomon will be split. But the judgment is, is on a leash. It's going to be mitigated. It's going to be directed. It's going to be controlled by God's faithfulness to a promise. 
God's in control, but he's in control with his eyes towards a promise that he has made to his people. A promise made way back to the, to the, to the patriarch Jacob, Israel himself, when he said that the scepter, the rule of the king, would not depart from the tribe of Jacob's son Judah. And it was because of that promise that God chose David, who was Solomon's father, of course, from the tribe of Judah to be king. And it was to David then that God extended the promise of a forever king in his line, in his lineage. Turn in your Bible, if you can. Turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 7. I think it'd be helpful to, to, to see this. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel is right before 1 Kings. So it's right before 2 Samuel 7. And I want to start in the middle of verse 11. Listen to this. This is God speaking to David, who's king at the time, through the prophet Nathan. 2 Samuel 11. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, most immediately, that's talking about Solomon. Now, there's an ultimate fulfillment in that that, that, that is to be reconciled, but most immediately, that's talking about Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And most immediately, that's talking about the temple. And there's a greater fulfillment in the greater kingdom that God is building, but most immediately he's talking about the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You see what he's saying here? Solomon doing wrong is not surprising God. And it's not negating the promise. The kingdom of David's son Solomon, the lamp that's in Jerusalem, it says in 1 Kings 11, is going to continue. It's going to stay lit. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 1. So, first book of the New Testament. There's just one verse I want you to see here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 7. You see this, right, this verse. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. It's just Solomon's name, right? Just Solomon's name. But where is it located? In a list of names that leads to who? To Jesus. In verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Do you see that? Jesus is the son of Solomon. God isn't done. Things are going to get very bleak for the people of God. The unity of the kingdom is completely broken. There's going to, there are going to be a few good kings along the way, but not very many. The prophets are going to be largely ignored. Israel and Judah will both ultimately be conquered. Their people sent into exile. The temple in all of its beauty and the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, never to be rebuilt to, to its earthly, the same kind of earthly glory that it had. But God wasn't done. He kept his promise. He preserved the tribe of Judah and the line of David and Solomon because it was from that line that Jesus would come. And guys, that's where, that's where our hope is. If you think back to 2 Samuel 7, when, God, when Solomon did wrong, he didn't receive the, the literal floggings inflicted by men that God promised to, the, to those who did wrong. He didn't receive the, the, the literal floggings, but Jesus did, and so much more. And Jesus never strayed from his course, not even a degree, not at all. He always had his course perfectly set on the will of his Father. But he took the floggings that Solomon deserved, that we deserve so that we could gain instead a heavenly dwelling, a heavenly kingdom that puts the glory and the splendor of Solomon's kingdom, it, it makes it look drab and dreary by comparison. 
So that's lesson number four. God's not done with his promise to David and Solomon, which means, finally, which means then for me and you, God's not done with me and you. That's lesson number five. If he's, despite what's happened, God is in control. He's not done with his promise. And if he's not done with his promise to David and Solomon that ultimately leads to Jesus, then he's not done with you and me. You might be wondering, it's a natural question to kind of ask if you look at the end of this. Is, did Solomon ever learn from his mistakes? Did he repent? You see Solomon in heaven? Doesn't see, First Kings 11 here, you don't seem to get any kind of indication of that. I think, incidentally, he prob- I think he probably did. I take that from, you know, from 1 Kings chapter 3, the language that it uses about his love for God is a, a covenantal kind of language that usually is only used when it's talking about a love given by God. And so I think he probably did. And if you believe that Ecclesiastes, the traditional view is Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, if you, if you take that, then you, you see instances at the end of that where you kind of say, okay, maybe these are examples of Solomon recognizing the vanity of, of the pursuits that he had, in, uh, had embraced in his in his life. But, but regardless, I mean, it's an interesting question. It's a valid question, particularly for Solomon. It's a valid question, right? Am I going to learn from the mistakes that I've committed? But the question really for us is not so much what happened to Solomon. Did he learn from his mistakes? But the question is for us is, is do we? Will we? Will we learn from our mistakes? Will we learn from, from Solomon's mistakes? The question we should be asking is whether we will repent. Right? Regardless of whether we can be sure about Solomon's salvation, we can certainly be sure of ours. It doesn't come from trusting in yourself. It doesn't come from trusting in your wisdom, in your gifts. It doesn't come from trusting in any of those things. It comes in, trustify, test, in trusting in the, in, in, the, in the Savior to whom Solomon pointed, the ultimate, the ultimate king, from trusting in Jesus, the one who took the death and the judgment that we, that we deserve. Now, have you done that? If you've never done that, we, put, we, we print in the, in the bulletin every, every week a prayer that you can use to sort of articulate what that sounds like to come to God, to, to, to repent of, of your sins, to, to say, God, I want to come back and, and to be on, on, a, on a course that's set towards you. Will you forgive me? But, you know, maybe, maybe you've done that before. Maybe what you're struggling for, with is the stuff of life. You're starting to see, like, wait a minute, I think I'm off course. And the answer is the, answer is this, is the same in terms of direction. Is repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. Recognize that he kept that course perfectly for you. And as a result of that, comes and lives in you, the eternal temple, you know, the, the eternal dwelling place of God. Now, with, with his people, because of what Jesus has done, empowering us to be able to have the capacity to obey, to follow, to stay on course. Right? Let Solomon's life help you with that. I read per, one person kind of sum up, sum up Solomon's life like that. They said, why make your own mistakes when you can learn from his? <laughs> right? Do that. Will you? Will you let Solomon teach you? Could it be that, that the primary point of everything we've been studying since April, the primary point of the reign of King Solomon, the whole reason why it's there in the context of history, and we learn so much about it, could it be that the primary point is that he failed? So that we're not pointed to him, but we're pointed to the Savior, the King, that we so desperately need instead. Yes, <laughs> that's the point. Then could it be that the point of my own failure, your own failure, even your regular failure to stay on course, could it be that the point of that is to remind you that you need to be trusting not in yourself or in your wisdom or in your gifts, but in the Savior to whom Solomon pointed? Yes. God's not done with us. He's not done with me and you. We're still, 
we're still under construction. Now, that's not always pleasant. I, I understand. Stacy and I were just away last week, and we drove on, drive on highways and go through areas of construction, and it's never pleasant. There's always this promise it's going to be something greater, but in the midst of it, when you're stuck in traffic, it's not pleasant, right? I know that, but God's not done. One of the places that we visited when we were away last week was the Cove, the, the conference and retreat center. Um, we didn't stay there. We didn't go to a conference or anything. We just kind of went and saw the visitor center. It's the, the conference and retreat center for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and so they have a little retreat there, a little area of kind of exhibits. And, um, and one of the things that they had there, I don't remember it, but Stacy saw it. They have a picture of Ruth Graham's tombstone. Ruth was the, the wife of, of, of Billy Graham for almost 64 years before her death in 2007. And, and it's kind of an interesting question. You just kind of ask yourself. At the end of Solomon's life, you're looking at Solomon's life, and he dies. And what, would, what would be the epitaph? What would be the, what would you put on his tombstone? What would you kind of say to summarize his, his life? This is an interesting question to ask yourself, right? As you're kind of considering the mortality of Solomon and the point of his life and the point of yours, what would be the epitaph? What would I want to kind of be the, the summary statement? You know what's on Ruth Graham's tombstone? This is fascinating. I never, never, never knew this. It says very simple. It says, Ruth Bell Graham, June 10th, 1920 to June 14th, 2007. And then underneath that it says, end of construction, thank you for your patience. It's a road sign. Right? End of construction, thank you for your patience. That's what's on our Tuesday. It's a road sign, right? But it's so true. In this life, we're under construction. But God is exceedingly patient with us. He wants us to experience the consequences of our sin. He lovingly designs our experience of the consequences of our sin, not because they're good, but because he wants us to experience the futility of being off course so that we might turn to Christ and come back to him. You know, there's one more thing that's on her tombstone, which I didn't realize. I had to look it up. There's a Chinese character at the top. She was the son of, or the daughter of, uh, of medical missionaries to China. It's a Chinese character. I looked it up. It's a symbol for, for righteousness. And boy, that's really fitting too. Because right? over top of the construction, right? Jeroboam was a construction manager. What he was doing for Solomon. Right? Very poor job. But, but that's what he's doing. Over top of our construction is not somebody like Jeroboam. Over top of our construction, supervising our construction, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one to whom Solomon pointed. See, God is so patient with us because the supervisor is the righteous son of Solomon. He's not done with his promise. It's a promise that he's made, and it's a promise that he'll keep. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we look at our lives, and they may differ in the details from Solomon's, but Lord, the same rebellion, the same desire to trust in our gifts, to trust in ourselves, the same wandering of our hearts away from you, and let you, Lord, yet, Lord, you are so gracious to us because you put these buts, you put these howevers in the midst of Scripture that remind us that you are not done. And it's not because, Lord, you have this eternal faith in us to get it right the next time. It's because you have, you have the confidence in your own promise that what you have promised will be fulfilled. It came true in Jesus, fulfilled the line of David. And Lord, it comes true in each of us when we put our trust in you and you bring us to the eternity that you have promised. So God, we pray this day that that will be our hope, that will be our confidence, that we would look to you to be the rescuer from the consequences of our own sin and rebellion and look in hope 
through the midst of our circumstances to the eternal home, the eternal temple, where we will dwell with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.